With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. As always, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we appreciate you being with us on the program with whatever time you are so generous to give to us. We appreciate you watching the show. As always, like and subscribe, and that is more important than ever now because the dark cyber overlords at YouTube have banished me from Mordor. So now I am on the outside looking in. We're actually not streaming on YouTube this week. We the, the reason we didn't have a show last week is because I was trying to figure all that out and sort it out. They actually suspended me last week uh, just before the show was about to start. So I had to go through that whole thing. But that is why we are streaming on Facebook, on Twitter, on Rumble, on Twitch. And so we do have other venues. You can still watch us. We're just We've been banished from YouTube, at least for now. I believe that suspension ends on the 23rd, and I think I can live stream again like in a week or so, something like that. Don't really understand how it works, but keep be sure to stay tuned into all of our social media for news on all of that. So, you know, it's more important now than ever to like and subscribe because that helps uh, combat the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. So be sure to do that and listen to us on the audio only podcast. We don't talk about that very much. Uh, but we do get quite a few listeners from all over the world on the audio podcast. And so if you're listening to us that way, we appreciate you being a part of the audience as well. Now, if you are on the audio podcast, you can't tell that I am wearing a Braves shirt, a Braves hat, and have a Braves background back here. As you can tell, I'm pretty excited about being world champions. That I've been a Braves fan since I was a little kid. I, rem I actually do remember, very vaguely, but I do remember the World Series that they won last time in 1995. I remember them making it to the World Series in 1999. And so I do remember those things, not super clearly, because, you know, that was a long time ago. But I do remember them, and I remember a lot of the players back then. But being a longtime Braves fan, it's just so cool to see this team win. You know, what's cool about this team, too, is there are plenty of Braves teams that were more talented than this team, had much many more wins than this team did. And yet, this is the team that wound up being world champions. And I think that that speaks to this idea because they had to make so many changes. They, they lost Ronald Acuna Jr., one of their best, if not their best player, certainly their hottest player when they lost him. And, uh, you know, all kinds of pitching problems. They didn't have a catcher for a big portion of this season. And I think that if there is one message you can take out of their story, it's don't give up. Keep trying things. Keep trying different things. Don't assume that you're out of it just because something terrible like losing a Kuna or losing your catcher and having to pull up rookie catchers and that kind of thing that, that they went through all year, losing their entire outfield. I mean, this team just absolutely pulled it together and did the best that they could and, and cobbled together. And, and one of the cool things about this team is there wasn't even really a superstar per se. It was really a team effort. The the MVPs of the series, you know, with Eddie Rosario for the NL championship and then with Soler, th those were two guys that weren't even on the team a few months ago. And so just 
keep trying new things and, and don't ever give up because you try something and something may work out and the Braves are living proof of that. So I uh, did want to just mention that and I'm super excited about that. That's actually going to be something we talk about a little bit later in the show. But for now, we do have another news story to talk about. And you know that local news is king here. We always try to take care of news inside the state of Alabama here at Tactics because that's our forte. However, I'm going to do something a little bit different, something that you probably wouldn't have expected tonight. We are going to start with a story out of Shreveport, Louisiana, but there is a local tie-in. Stick with me, guys. You've been with me long enough to know to trust me. There is going to be a local tie-in here, but we're going to start outside of our state in Louisiana. So I just wanted to go ahead and share this clip with you. We'll go through a few of these and I'll give some commentary, but but I want you to pay close attention to what's going on at this school in Shreveport, Louisiana. Wood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Plagued with violence. Over the course of three days, another fight. 23 students arrested for fighting. Massive police response. But strangely, there hasn't been another incident since. Perhaps in part because of this most unusual crisis intervention team. Nobody here has a degree in school counseling. No. no majors in criminal justice. No. No. Your qualifications are? Well, Dad, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? For us. So Michael Lafitte started Dads on Duty. We're out doing what we do for our babies. A group of about 40 Southwood dads who now hang out at the school in shifts. Let's go. Today, any negative energy that enters the building has to run a gauntlet of good parenting. Now, it's interesting to me that the media has suddenly discovered the patriarchy. Like, all of a sudden, the media just finally figured out, wait a second, you mean getting parents involved at the schools actually helps and makes things better? I mean, that's only what I've been saying since literally I started doing this on talk radio about six years ago. That, that's what every conservative that I'm aware of has been saying forever. Getting parents involved in the schools, putting them in charge of their child's education because parents tend to want what's best for their kids, getting them involved had a huge positive effect. And this school has not had a single incident since these dads got involved. And what they're doing isn't magic. Like they said, their their qualifications are not that they, you know, are, are guidance counselors or psychologists or anything like literally all they are, are dads that have raised kids before and are hanging out at the school and because they know how to raise kids and they know how to get kids to behave, that's the effect that they've had on the school, even kids that aren't their kids. Uh, no principal, counselor, state board of education intervention, yes, I'm looking at you, Montgomery, on that one, could have had this effect. It was just a bunch of parents that sat around and decided, there's a problem, let's solve the problem. And they did. And, you know, props to them for getting involved. And I guarantee you, this was not part of the report. It, the report was all about discipline and, and the general feel of the school and the safety of the school. That's all well and good. And, and that's what a news organization should be doing because there hasn't been enough time to involve this aspect of it. But I, I guarantee you grades go up. Guarantee you this school, if this continues on and this trend and they, they keep this program going for a couple of years, guarantee you you'll be able to look back in a couple of years and the grades will have improved dramatically because of this, just because you solve the behavioral issues, you solve the, the out of the classroom issues, you tend to start helping the in-classroom issues. Not saying it's a silver bullet, not saying it'll solve every problem, but I guarantee you grades get better if this program continues on. And I, I just, 
I find the whole thing interesting that the, the mainstream media, the corporate media here, who has been decrying parents getting involved and, and not really treated that as a viable thing, and, and they always look to government for the solutions to their problems, turns out you just turn a bunch of dads loose in a school and they solve a whole bunch of the problems and getting parents involved in education has that effect. So let's go ahead and look at another clip from this one. Same report. I immediately felt a form of safety. We stopped fighting, people started going to class. How could that be? You ever heard of a look? A look? Dads it's have just, the power to do that? Yes. <laughs> not many people know it, but yes. <laughs> let's go, let's go. But it's not just the firm stares and stern warnings. Let's make it to class, my son. It's also the dad jokes. <laughs> they just make funny jokes like, oh, hey, your suit's untied, but it's really not untied. <laughs> they hate it. They're so embarrassed by it. <laughs> and it's that perfect mix of tough love and gentle ribbing that dads do so well that has helped transform this school. The school has really just been like happy and you can feel it. Which is why the dads plan to keep coming to Southwood indefinitely. Because not everybody mm -hmm. has the father, the father figure at home. Mm -hmm. Or a male period in their life. Like so that. just to be here makes a big difference. Huh, so you're saying that children need a father in their lives again. The media acts as though this is some kind of massive revelation. And by the way, I'm not trying to detract from the accomplishment that this group of, of dads have, have put together and, and fixed the school. I'm not trying to say that it's not a big deal or trivialize it at all. But what I am saying is, this is stuff that should be obvious. This is stuff that it shouldn't take a degree in education to figure out. Kids need fathers. And I know that we've spent the past several decades acting like dads aren't really that big a deal. And you know, we, we don't want to say anything that might offend the single moms out there. And don't get me wrong, there, there's some fantastic single moms out there. I'm not saying that there aren't. But what I am saying is the, the good parents, moms and dads, will realize that children need a father in their life. And that's something that that dad just talked about when he was being interviewed by the guy at CBS. And you heard the, the kids' reactions. They need a, a stern authoritarian and it's not like these guys are extra security guards throwing kids up against walls when they misbehave that's not what they needed at all they just needed a dad being around and having that male presence that authority figure presence around the school made a difference it made a difference in the way that the kids thought it made a difference in the way that they acted and behaved and it's not even that they're scared of the dads it's more like they don't want to disappoint them which is what the presence of a father does you know what's interesting here I'm taking a guess here, so I, I admit this is speculation, but I would be willing to bet that of the 23 arrests that they had in three days that started this whole thing and, and the discipline problems they were having before that as well, I would be willing to guess that these dads, their kids are not the ones that are acting up. Their, their kids are not the ones that were fighting or got arrested. Maybe there were some that were, but I would be willing to take a guess that the vast majority of these dads, that if they're this involved in their kids' lives and if they're you know, looking out for them, that their kids were probably the ones that were doing okay already. But they saw that the school that their kid was going to had this problem. And because of that, they kind of took on the role of a dad in a lesser sense, of course, but to, to all the other kids in the, the school, and it made a difference. And so studies have shown over and over again, the number one determining factor to whether a kid commits crimes, gets involved with drugs, violence, uh, goes to school, graduates high school, graduates college, all of those things. The number one determining factor more than 
income, social status, everything else is, it, do they have a mom and dad and are mom and dad married and in the home together? That's the number one thing. And when you see dads having a presence in their kid's life, the rate of them getting in trouble with the law and not graduating high school, that drops dramatically. And so this isn't some kind of, you know, massive revelation, which is what it's kind of being treated like. It's something that's common sense. And, and we know that because we know that kids need fathers. So I'm going to uh, show you the last clip here. And this is the explanation of why I'm starting with a non-local story. And it's, it's pretty short, but I think it gets the point across. Here we go. Last clip. Have a good morning. They'd like to start chapters of Dads on Duty throughout Louisiana. What's up, baby boy? And hope to eventually take on the country. So what I'm going to say here is please, 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 please start a chapter of this in Montgomery, Alabama. It is greatly needed. That's why I started this with a story that isn't quote unquote a local story because it needs to be a local story. This needs to be a story, a news report that we could put on here on WSFA or Alabama News Network or any of the other local channels. This needs to be something that happens in this community. Now, am I saying that having something like this would fix all of Montgomery School's problems? No, I'm not saying that at all. But it would be a massive, massive step in the right direction. And I think it's one that we ought to take. I, I hope that we can get uh, involved in that on some level. We need this in Montgomery. And I think that it would have, uh, you, you would see a difference in night and day almost instantaneously if we were to implement something like this. And I, I do want to point out the irony here because we all know what happened with the Virginia elections. Terry McAlfie lost that race primarily. I think the thing that was the beginning of the end for him in, in very blue Virginia, which is surrounding the DC area, he lost that race because he said, no, I don't think parents should be involved in their, their schools, their children's education. I don't think they should be telling schools what to teach. There has been an attitude coming out of Washington in particular, but also from Democrats all over the place, that actually we need less parental involvement in schools. What you should do is you should just turn your kids over to the schools and that they should be educating them. This news report in just three minutes completely debunks every ounce of academic papers that are written on that. I guarantee you, you get kids parents more involved with the schools, you're going to see results like this. Here's a headline from the Washington Post, and you'll see it here. Washington Post, parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. This is not something that is an isolated incident. And, and by the way, that headline is bad enough, but when you actually read that story, it gets worse and worse and worse and basically says over and over again that they 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 need the parents out of the classroom and that it actually inhibits a child's education to have parents involved in their child's education. What this really stems from, though, is the attitude that has been pervasive in the Democrat Party for a while now, which is essentially, How dare you peons ever question anything we say? They really do think they can educate your children better than you can. And it's unfortunate, but this is something that has happened over and over. We see it again and again and again. Terry McAlfie is just the latest example of this. And, and the Washington Post, the people over there, very left-leaning organization. They're saying exactly the same thing. 
Uh, and I do find it funny that the left is is trying to uh, stand on free speech as the reason that we need to get parents out of the way so that we can teach kids to think for, think for themselves. Like, I'm in favor of teaching kids to think for themselves. I, I've always been that way. It, that's the reason that I advocate for debate being more a central part of education because it does teach kids to think, think for themselves. But I want you to remember, these are the same people that are banning books and try getting a Bible taught in the school. If we're just teaching kids to think for themselves, shouldn't we be talking about religion? Shouldn't we talk to a leftist and see what they think about that? Uh, if we're just teaching kids, you know, we're 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 not teaching kids how to think. We're just uh, we're, we're not teaching them what to think. We're teaching them how to think. Okay, then let's introduce uh, religious ideas. And by the way, throw in the Quran. I'm fine with that. Throw in other ideas. Throw in some Buddhism. That's fine with me. The point is, that's not what they actually want. That's what they're standing on right now because it's convenient. But I guarantee you, you try to bring other ideas, opposing ideas that do not mesh with their worldview, they're going to try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. They think of you as peons that are not smart enough to educate your kids, which is the reason you have to turn your children over to them. And these are the same people that are pushing CRT and the 1619 Project, which I mean, it actually states in the introduction, there is an aspect of activism. So they are indoctrinating your kids. And again, in Virginia, which we just saw, this is the same people that are putting gay pedophilic porn in libraries and giving, I know this is gross to think about, but masturbation instructions. We've seen schools giving that to kids with COVID. This is their vision. And then you see that contrasted with the vision that I just showed you of parents actually being intimately involved in their child's education. That is a huge difference. And you have the FBI with the Attorney General Merrick Garland saying that parents, going along with a letter saying that the parents that spoke up and are tired of this crap at the school boards, those people are domestic terrorists for not wanting their kids to have a curriculum full of CRT and gay porn. Yeah, parents are the same as the Klan and um, you know, the Weather Underground and other domestic terrorist organizations because they don't want their kids looking up gay porn in the school's library. That's the same thing, according to the Attorney General Merrick Garland, put them in that same classification. And uh, this all happened five days after the National School Board wrote a letter saying that they were domestic terrorists. So the bottom line here is, I trust parents to make better decisions for their children than the schools do doesn't mean the parents are always going to make better decisions. There's going to be occasions where that is not the case. But ultimately, if I have to roll the dice and take a chance on who has the kid's best interest at heart, I'm always going to default to the parents. Unless I have a very, very good reason in that particular situation not to. As a general rule, I just think they have a better idea of what that kid needs than the government does. And so I thought it would be great to bring in somebody that is an expert in this, somebody who has been a teacher for 27 years and retired and is now actually working with young people again as a member of the State uh, Department of Education for FFA. So we're going to go ahead and bring on someone who is not only a teacher, but also my dad, John Cockwood. Thank you so much for being on the program with us. Yeah, it's great to be on. And it is a certainly appropriate because today I spoke to somewhere between 150 and 200 students at a school in North Alabama. And I can say the name of the school. It's fine. It's Pell City. 
sure. uh, a school not yet corrupted by being in the proximity of Montgomery, which is a good benefit. Uh, to react to the program, I love the program, obviously, because it was so effective, but because it's so simple and such common sense being utilized here that dads can have an influence on it. And when people recognize their school is in chaos and nothing positive is happening out of it, and you know that the kids were just scared to death to be there because they thought maybe another fight would break out at any moment. Right, and you that's the thing we have to remember, too. The, the kids that are actually fighting, they're still the minority. And so you've got a majority of the kids that are probably good kids that are scared that they're going to get hurt just going to school. And that's all the talk. I can tell you in the culture of that school, haven't been there, don't know anything about it other than, than this report. But you can rest assured that that's all the kids are worried about, talking about all day, every day while they're in class. And you cannot learn and you cannot be productive in an environment like that, I'm really glad. And, and one of the things you mentioned, too, mm -hmm. that I like to react to is sure. you can guarantee that those dad's kids were not the problem. Probably not. I, I would I would be willing to bet money that the their kids that were at that school were not the issue. No. Um, and, but I can say this. And you mentioned something about Montgomery. The education leaders there need mm -hmm. to have a similar program to this. Sure. And I think that would be a great model for it and to, to study that. But I can assure you, the Montgomery education leaders in Montgomery, there would have a list of things a mile long in, a sh in quick order as why this program shouldn't be done. Uh, they would start talking about the legal ramifications of it. They don't want, they don't want parents involved in that situation, because if you tried it and you act, you know, there was a time when I was in, in the classroom myself mm -hmm. where we had programs and we had kids, uh, parents coming into the classroom. And you know how yeah. I was, I was always excited to have a parent show up. I mean, that was, they were always invited to my class. Yeah, uh, I just wanted them to see what we were doing, <laughs> you know, because I thought that was uh, compliment a compliment to our program that they would want to come to see i invited parents all the time that was never an issue with me and it in this situation it needs to be a model to help improve schools because you don't have to have a school that bad and that out of control for a program like this to have a huge impact on the the climate of the the school the kids their academic progress and all of those kind of things well, and I uh, think that that is something that we should emphasize, too, because I've been talking a lot about Montgomery schools and, and having something similar to this. First of all, you don't have to have this particular program. It doesn't have to be exactly this, but some level of parental involvement is going to make an improvement. And beyond that, the goal ought to be prevention. Like it would be better for these chapters to go and fix schools before they get to the point that this school in, in Shreveport got to. And yeah, uh, you know, use it as a preventative measure. You know, I've been in, and I still say, as far as the, and I look at things from a teacher's perspective, and I think this program will be great. And I would, uh, with open arms, welcome the people to do something like this because and I would want to know what they wanted to do and be really familiar with the parents that are going to do it so they don't do something. I don't understand legally. I guess they were in such chaos and they were so desperate that they allowed this to these dads to come into the school. Maybe I'm yeah. betting that that people in Montgomery would not allow something like that to happen. I can tell you that because as you've heard me say before, I really do believe fundamentally that the people in Montgomery, as bad as that school system is, they do not want it to improve. 
Well, and that sounds ridiculous. I, I, I want but I'm to. Telling you, they don't. I, I'm telling you, my my instinct here, and you know, sometimes when you and I talk politics, which we do on a regular basis, I'm usually the one that has to back you off. I'm the one that says. No, I, th I think you're a little overly pessimistic about that, or I, I don't think it's quite as bad. No, on this one, I really can't find a point of disagreement. I think it is absolutely the way that you're describing it, just based on my somewhat more limited experience than yours. But th there is a hesitancy to let anybody even see what is going on. There is a, a complete lack of transparency. And, there and, and, and there is a there is also a bias towards the status quo which makes no sense to me because the status quo sucks. Yeah, it does. And it's that's something that they want to maintain because then everybody has their position, their job is protected, and they're happy with it. And the people that are making the decision, guess what? They're not in the classroom. Mm -hmm. They're not making – they're not having to be there with the kids. So they don't care what's going on. It's not them that's in danger. Because the people at the central office are not the ones inside that school where the danger actually is. Well, and I think that that speaks volumes to when you contrast that to what we just saw with the CBS report. Because what the dads did, I mean, you, you know how people think. You have to know that some of those dads were worried that they could get hurt. Yeah. That there was something that could happen to them or, or, you know, this actually, I think was probably a more common thought that went through their head. Like I said, I very much doubt that these dads, it was their kids that were causing the issues. So they might've even considered what happens if one of these kids doesn't like that we're there and retaliates against my kid. You don't think that that went through their heads? Sure. And I'm so I, co I commend their courage because of that. Oh, because they're willing to to get on the ground level and talk to these kids and make an actual improvement in their kids' schools. And, uh, you know, I, I think that took an incredible amount of not only creativity, but also courage and, and willingness to, you know, kind of take kids under their wing that aren't theirs. Yeah, well, I, let me address this too, if I may, because it's not directly to this story, but just in general in education, and I'm in a lot of schools, a lot of classrooms across the state of Alabama in the east central part of Alabama. Sure. And there have been changes since you were in. And there have been changes since I left teaching. And I am just flabbergasted by what's going on in that classroom. And, and this problem wouldn't have probably erupted to the point that the dads were able to come in if we had one simple thing that I'm always a proponent of. And believe that we need to fix is teachers having some control in their own classroom because almost all of them will tell me that they, the teacher themselves, have no real control or have any discipline that they can institute in their own classroom that they can do to the kids to get them to act right. Mm -hmm. We have apathy in, in this classroom, uh, we have disrespect for teachers. And I know that there are family factors that are involved with this, where you've got a family where you don't have any discipline there. And then when they get to school, then the teacher's hands are tied. And inside that classroom, you can't even say the wrong thing to them, much less do the things to the kids to maintain discipline that I did to y'all when you were there. Right, which was and just assigning us push-ups and things like that. Yeah, simple, I, but it worked. Doing, I could, it was simple and it did work. And in my day of growing up, they just, put you up on the board, said, put your hands on the board, and they busted right. your tail. 
Right. And, and you didn't have to have that happen very many times. And the behavior was changed that they so often talk about in the college courses. Mm. That was change of behavior. But we've got so many things that are, they would rather, it seems like, instead of fixing the problem, they would rather identify an excuse for why that student is the way they are. And we've got, and we know this, we've got ADHD and we got ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. That sounds like a kid to me that needs a foot up his behind, but he, it, symbolically, of course, sure. we have anxiety disorder and we have depression and learning disorders. And I know some of those things are real. I'm not, I'm not dismissing those things at sure. all. But what I am saying is we made a label for practically any kind of inappropriate behavior that comes about with our young people. And, and people don't know this, but their jobs tied to all those issues and that we're talking about. Well, and when, when a teacher doesn't have any control in this classroom and the principal, typically most meetings that you have with the principal in a faculty meeting after school or before school meetings, they start telling you a list of things that you can't do to the kids. Mm -hmm. And when you start out that way, then that teacher feels like, well, you know, I might as well not even be there. <laughs> if I can't, yeah. you know, I can. Yeah, I mean, I can turn in my lesson plans and try to do the instruction, but whatever the kids do, all I can ever do is send them to the office. I'm told I can't really do anything. And people are surprised by that, that have been out of the school setting for a long time. That is absolutely across the board, the common way that it is out there. Most teachers don't have any control over anything that happens in their classroom. Now, they can get on to them. They can say something to them. They have to be tempered with it. They have to unlike I was with y'all, but they, sure. they do, they have to be, you can't, you know, raise your voice. You certainly can't make them do anything physically. You can't make them do anything repetitively. And when you, the teacher loses his control or anything that he can do to a kid inside a classroom, then you start having things erupt like you see in the, the hallway, in the gym, or wherever that was where all the fights were taking place. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have that violence. That whole culture down there was in chaos. Well, here's what, here's what I think was was part of it. There were students that, like you said, because they there was no respect for the teachers and the teachers couldn't do anything. And because their hands were tied, they didn't have to worry about what the teachers thought about them or, or what they thought of their behavior. All of a sudden, the dads show up and all of a sudden, some, there is somebody here that actually uh, can say something to me not somebody that's an employee of the school. They're just volunteers. I think that that is part of the equation. I really do. Well, I know that in any instance like that, where you've got situations that, and Montgomery, I've been close to the schools and that's just an example. It, it, Montgomery isn't the only one. No. There are issues all across the board out there. Uh, young people that are incredibly disrespectful and people my age that are so far removed from the school would just be absolutely blown away if they saw the way that students talk to each other, the kind mm -hmm. of language that they use, it's more common to hear cussing in classroom now. Uh, it's more common for teachers to uh, be called by their first name among the students. How long do you think that would last in my little deal? Well, I know because I remember it happening and you uh, stopping it right away. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. My, you know, I told them this was my rule and not to get into my thing so much, but I told them, I said, sure, you can call me by my first name. If you're willing to do 40 push-ups the first time, 50 the second time, 60 the third time, keep doing it. I don't care. I'll count. 
I'll get a kid to count them for me. Sure. And and that was something that was immediate. And I think one of the keys to this program being so effective, it looks like to me that the dads had some, obviously they, they were respected because they were there, but I think that they had more eyes on the kids and the kids were afraid of what the dad might do. Right. That they weren't held to the same kind of classroom program, I mean, protocol that they have in the classroom now. They know the doggone teachers can't do anything. Right. Every teacher I come across says, we can't do anything to them. And I ask them this question, and I don't work for the State Department of Education. Don't cuss me like that. I'm paid <laughs> for by the Alabama FFA Foundation. Uh, I work with some of the state people, but I am not a state person. Okay. I will well, not I will not that, go though. to the I won't go to the dark side. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten that hungry. No, and, I, and I'm being facetious a little bit with it. I love our people, but you know what I think about a lot of the folks at the State Department. I, I, I know that. But I mean I, I also know that you can disagree with your higher ups and still, you know, um be be an employee at an or be a part of an organization. But I, I know right, what you're saying. My personal higher ups are younger than I am, and they knew me as a teacher, and they still call me Mr. Coffin. So I know that is actually kind of a funny dynamic to watch. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So, nevertheless, and, and they don't ever, they just ask me what to do. They don't tell me anything. Well, <laughs> nevertheless, but about this program, right? I, I just would love to see the reaction of the Montgomery County Board of Education, uh, the Elmore County Board of Education, and people in the River Region. But most assuredly, uh, in places like Mar Mobile and Birmingham and uh, other cities of the state of Alabama, I would love to see what the Board of Education and what the administrators of the, the schools, how they would react to this program and say, hey, are you ready to do something like this? Because I think a program like that can help any school, whether it's breaking out with violence like that or not. Right. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, too, because I brought you in because you have two qualifications here. Obviously, you're somebody that has been in the education system for a really long time. You're an expert. You're you're a classically trained teacher with a degree in this stuff. However, mm -hmm. these dads aren't. No. And they made that significant a difference. And so I want to ask you, like, just as a father, is there some level of just instinct that has kicked in or is it through experience or whatever that because these guys are parents and they've presumably got teenagers of the same age of the kids that they're dealing with here in the school. What is it about that that prepares them to make such a huge impact in this school and, and sort of the fabric of its culture in, in this particular school? Well, first, it's not rocket surgery. You don't have to be, you don't have to have any education at all. One of the best, some of the best disciplinarians I've ever known in my life were my grandparents. And my grandfather, on my mom's side, he had an eighth or ninth grade education. Mm -hmm. He certainly didn't have any instruction in how to raise kids. But all, I wasn't around when he was raising his children, but I know how he was with his grandchildren, and we never crossed it. And he didn't even have to raise his voice. Yeah. I, and and uh, my other grandparents, too, to, to answer your question, is pretty obvious. It's not that difficult at all to see the common sense things that you need to do to be able to instill some respect for other people, 
with those kids in the classroom. And we used to have uh, universities that taught things that were actually effective and worked. But we're so far removed from that education now that basically what they're taught is the law of what they can't do if you boil it all down. But well, I mean, I imagine with how many restrictions they have, it takes just about four years at a university to learn all of that. You know, you talked about the single mothers a while ago. Right. I would like to, I, I think somebody that would be a, an outstanding person with this would be the grandmother in the project that has had to raise a dozen kids. I guarantee you, a, a mom could do it too. Oh, yeah. I it's, think it's dad is magical. It's nothing magical about the dad. I, don't you think the grandmother that's had to raise several kids that's probably not her own? Uh, I've seen some of those ladies like that. They're outstanding with kids. Now, and the, you know, that kind of lady can put the fear of God into a kid, but they love her too. And see, that's the thing. We've gone so far beyond in trying to build self-esteem, I guess, or something, and, and trying to um, we're so worried about inhibiting the kids in some way psychologically because we get on to them or we discipline them in some way. And, you know, I was thinking about that today. Uh, one of the things I did, if they had a video camera on some of the things I did today, it would go viral. Yeah. No, I know because I know your teaching it, style. And you know what I did, too, and I, because we talked about it earlier. Sure. But and there was nothing wrong with what I did. In fact, those kids got a kick out of it before it was over with. Or initially, it was kind of painful. They thought, you know, not uh, literally, but you know, it was kind of harsh. That it seemed like before it was over with, they were fine. And and I think that you know we're so concerned about uh, not inhibiting our kids in some way, uh, and we've gone to the nth degree with their rights and that kind of thing. And they all know what they are, and we've got. Uh, special education departments that will inform them of all their rights and, and that kind of thing that they, they know what you can't do and they know what you should do for them in their behalf uh, because they'll tell you that, you know, this child, uh, if he makes 70%, he actually made 100%. You count out that because he's special, you eliminate the 30%. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we have all of those kinds of things in place. They know what the laws and rules are that protect them. But those are the kinds of things that are in place that actually cripple our kids. Well, it, it actually goes back to something you were talking about earlier when you were talking about all the different um, disabilities or learning problems, which, as you asserted correctly, a lot of those things are real, not saying that they don't really have them, but what they are used as as an excuse to not hold them to a high standard, they're not treated as a thing that needs to be worked around an obstacle to overcome. You see, well, we, one of them, one of them, oppositional defiance disorder. Right. And it sounds like a bad kid with a bad attitude. Probably is. Defiant disorder. I mean, anybody that stomps his foot or, you know, fails to do what somebody asked them to do is belligerent about it. That's what that is. But that's but the we've point. we've labeled either. it now. It's an excuse. Right. It's that's, an excuse part. Right. It, even if they do legitimately have that problem, and even if it is actually harder for them, which I believe it probably is. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I was diagnosed with that when I was like 11. Um, mm -hmm. the, the I think correct, you grew out of it, though. <laughs> well, to, to some degree. Um, but the correct response to that 
is to figure out a way to work around it, not to just, uh-huh. you know, say, oh, well, you have that. And so it would be like since I've got the, the big baseball mural behind me, you know, Tyler Matzik, who was just lights out the entire postseason, he struggled a lot with legitimate issues with his arm earlier in his career. He figured out a way to work around it. He saw it as an obstacle to overcome. And that's he the also way that, has some issues in his head too, because he has well, some right. problems. Yeah. He, he actually had to take what a year off because he got the yips and just couldn't throw a strike. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Right. But the point is the reason that he is a world champion right now and was, I think, by far the best pitcher that the Braves had all postseason, they 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 are world champions in part because of him is because he treated it as an obstacle to be overcome. He didn't right. have go to the league and say, okay, well, I should really only have to get two strikes to get somebody out. That's not what they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not what they did. That's a good point. Yeah, this this thing that the program is outstanding, and I would love for them to do a case study on it to see why it worked. And I think they could, and it's not, it's not anything earth-shatteringly difficult to understand, and you don't have to have sure. any PhD people in there. But they could go into that school and figure out why it worked. But I promise you, you will have people throwing stones at a program like that, and they will make it much maligned. Because I think in actuality, they want the chaos. They love things like that. All you've got to do is look at what happened this, not this past summer, but the summer before, how ridiculous the behavior was of grown people burning and, you know, turning over cars and killing people, too. And... That well, behavior too was excused. Well, and they will excuse bad behavior. That's been proven. Well, you have to remember, and I, I don't mean to take it, you know, th- this one story is sort of a microcosm for our entire society, but I think that there there is some level of that. There is. What you have to remember is that what you're talking about with the system and a hesitancy to have any kind of transparency is that this kind of thing thrives in darkness. Mm-hmm. And we, when we are dealing with this postmodernism that is based off of complete moral ambiguity and, well, it might be right for you, but it's wrong for me. And we can just, you know, pick what our own version of right and wrong is. And yours is just as good as mine. And mine is just as good as yours. You can't be surprised when these are the results. Because yeah. when you tell a kid that two plus two can equal five if you give a good enough justification, why can't they justify punching another kid in the head because they wanted to? You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I get that those are two different things, but if you go far enough down that road, violence is eventually where you get. And, it is. And and so we're dealing with the exact opposite. And there is nothing that I think hilariously is more the antithesis of that than a strong parental figure that says, uh, no, don't do that. That was stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, it's really all it is, and and what's so great about it, and I think that these dads kind of emphasize this, especially with their attitude and demeanor about it, is it's a it is a corrective kind of love. Mm-hmm. It is it is correction, but it is correction with a purpose, and because they actually do care about the kids, because they wouldn't be there if they didn't care about the kids. Yeah, the worst thing you can do to a kid is ignore them. Well, a lot of these kids probably acted out because they either have parents that ignore them or have a parent that has done the ultimate form of ignoring and left them. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. Right. Uh, a, a kid, if you are engaged with a kid, even if you're harsh on them, the kid will still love you and still try to, to please their parent. 
even if they're not a very good one. Yep. But in this situation, obviously, that I can assure you, as you mentioned about the grades, and that's true. The whole culture in that school has changed. And it, this is what I think about that situation. You've got some little girl that's in the ninth grade, and she's five feet tall and doesn't even weigh 100 pounds, and she's scared to death to go to school. Mm-hmm. And now her life has gotten better because of that. Mm-hmm. Because she's the kind, and there are a lot of them in that school like that. Because they feel better about the whole culture, the whole climate of the school because of this situation. And I hope they'll, maybe they'll have enough sense at some point. Maybe we're getting a turnaround on our, uh, the craziness that's been going on in our society recently. And some of these kinds of things will get out there and people will look at it and say, you know, we've tried it this other way for so long. Maybe we need to go back to the basics and get some people involved and it actually try to improve our schools instead of making up reasons as to why they're acting out and blaming it on society and condoning the behavior that they have. Well, I got to say, and you know that this is where I thrive anyway, because I am a political pundit. Looking at what just happened in Virginia, which has been trending blue for my entire adult life and just keeps getting bluer and bluer and bluer, primarily because of those counties outside D.C., the only issue that seemed to be what anyone was talking about in that election in Virginia was education and how the schools are out of control, that they're not really teaching their kids and educating them in a way that is consistent with their parents' values, but also in a way that's just useful. Yeah. And so if, you know, we were kind of being apolitical and just talking about what's going on in the schools, but to, to take it to the political realm, I think the very loud and clear message that has come out of this is whether you're right or left, a Democrat voter or Republican voter, parents are tired of the way that the students are not taking care of their kids. And they will cross the aisle to vote for somebody that actually takes that seriously and says, no, no, I want your input. I want you to be involved in the school because, like I said, I think the beginning of the end for Terry McAlfee was he said, no, parents shouldn't be telling uh, the schools what to teach. I even saw interviews with people that have never voted for a Republican before that said, oh, I don't trust that. Yeah. Well, I wish people could could see how bad it is inside the classroom. I could tell you, uh, like I said, the dialogue between teacher and student Mm -hmm. is just so different than it was when you were in school. And you are not that old. I mean, you've been out of school for a while now. Yeah. You're 32. And it's so different than it was when I was in it. And I'm, I'm telling you this, and you know I was a good teacher, and I'll tell people, I don't know how long I would last starting over at a brand new school. I'd have to be very, very careful about where I went. And I know what I'm doing, and no. I haven't lost anything, but for and the, it's a shame. Just, that a just for those of you, I, I want to jump in here. I don't mean to talk over you, but just sure. to, to provide some context for my audience. Uh, Dad is currently working with with young people as one of the state officials for the Alabama FFA, one teacher of the year, one teacher of the month with golden apples, what, two or three times, I think? I don't know what, I won the whole thing, but that's... uh, Right, you won teacher of the year, but you also won like some of the smaller ones along the way, as I recall. And, uh, And on top of that, you had 
what we counted it up maybe 11 state championships that and that's just in one contest i think overall we probably had in the 20s or 30s state champions yeah well i was good at one thing that was finding good kids and getting them in my program that was the biggest thing right and i just said that to give the audience some context yeah he is a good teacher i know i'm biased but yeah i was good at what i did and you can sense it when you're good at it yeah Uh, i built a good program a lot of there were a lot of difficulties in being able to do that. Uh, that did not happen overnight. It took several years, but yeah, I was good at it. But so in context, uh, that's true. And I don't have all the answers, but I know some common sense things that I utilized and I saw other teachers utilize. We had some great teachers up there. Oh, and and I've seen great ones. teachers all of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, most teachers care about their students. Most teachers want them to do well. I think administrators do. And I really think at this point, both sides feel like their hands are tied so much that they really can't do much of anything. And that's where the problem lies. And I think that as we've said that several times mm-hmm. to hone in, if, if they saw the interactions in a classroom, uh, that's like to I'll give you an example. Okay. I had to temper myself. I had a kid to go to sleep. Well, my natural inclination with the kid went to sleep unless he was sick. I didn't let, I sure. could tell what, but this kid just didn't want to listen to me and went to sleep. I thought 150-something kids, he's the only one I remember going to sleep. In your day, I would have taken a water bottle, punched a hole in the top of it, and wet his neck down, and he would jump. Mm-hmm. All right. If I had done that today, I would be taking a risk because if that kid goes to the parent about it and that kind of thing, I'm talking about little things like that. You can't make a kid not go to sleep in your class. It's the little things that build up into the bigger things. That's something I, you've seen me do what I just said uh, many yeah. times. It goes to sleep. I don't water on him. I didn't hurt him. I just put a little water on his neck. But something as simple as that today, making a kid get up in front of, and if they refuse to do it, guess what? You can't make them do it. Little things like that that wear on a teacher after a while, and we know we can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't control the kids, you can't teach them anything. No, I, I agree. Um, you know, you've got a handful in there that will try anyway, just because they've been raised well or, or for whatever reason they have are motivated on their own, whatever it is. There's some that will learn anyway. But, but when you do that, you are – you are relying on the good nature of a teenager yeah. and their willingness to learn, which will work for some, but not many. Not many. The lion's share of them won't do it unless you make them do it. I was a pretty good <laughs> student, and there were times where I needed to kick in the pants, yeah. you, which yeah. you well know. I was, too. I was not a very good student myself. That's why I can identify with kids that aren't good students. Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, as far as this kind of, I do think it's, I think it's an incredible story. I think it's a microcosm of the issues that we have out there. Sure. Not to, we've got so many schools that are not up to that level in fighting. Um, I think that's a good school I went to today. I've been to several good schools. They're good teachers. But I can tell you that when a kid can just be lazy and get away with it, when they cannot try, not take a test, I don't know if your listeners know that or our viewers, uh, they can just not take it if they don't want to. They just don't care. And they'll tell the teacher they don't care. Um, and they don't care if their parents know some of them. <laughs> so it's, no, they will tell you to your face, I don't care. 
I don't care what happens. That's how they are, uh, which is a shame. And they'll say, I'm not doing that. Uh, a defiant 15-year-old acting as if he knows more than God will stand up in a grown man's face and say, I ain't doing that. Yeah. And you know you can't do – that's what I'm talking about. If you can see at that moment when that teacher can actually do something. And in my day, if I said, all right, get your butt to the floor and do 50 push-ups. And if he does it again, do it again. And you wear it out of him enough, and he'll eventually do it. Or yeah. say, I'm going to call your dad. Give me your phone. I'll call your dad at work. But you can't. That's my point. It's at that moment when you can't do the, and everybody else in there sees that too. It creates a culture where the teacher actually has some control, influence over his kids. And when you don't have that, you have destroyed the learning environment. Well, that's the thing. In that situation that you're talking about, the other students are watching. And if sure the other students see that nothing happens to that kid, well, then what's the point of trying in their minds? Yeah, and, if and the, tomorrow, and, it, and the opposite is also true. If they see a kid have to get down on the floor and do fifty push-ups to where he's, you know, in a full sweat, they think, "Well, I don't want that to happen to me." So, I mean, you, yeah. it's not just when about you, that one battle. No, it's not. It creates a culture, and you're. What will happen with that student that gets away with sleeping today? There was one. Tomorrow there'll be three. The next day there'll be five. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and, and it will be something else. Well, with the fighting, uh, that's what happened in this story. Is sure. that the, the dads came in, they were an authoritarian, and, and they had more eyes on the kids, and then the kids stopped fighting, and then it just became normal for there not to be fighting. Right. So, and anyway. I would guess that there were some adamant things. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I have I too. Think I think hopefully it's been I do too. I think it's done some good and I hope some people will listen to it and take it to heart and, and perhaps get involved in their schools because yeah. they're play if if you're allowed to do that, <laughs> I don't know. I, the bureaucracy now and the, the layers of hierarchy that we have in education that would all have to approve somebody coming in, you know, you're you're fighting a big bear when you do that. Well, that was the point of me uh, doing this segment anyway. Um normally because here's the thing. I am sick of the recourse being we all sit around in our circles and even listen to talk radio or, or podcasts like this and talk about how mad we are about something and the recourse is to wait until the next election and try to vote out the people that we disagree with. That right. system hasn't worked. It's never worked in my entire life. I'm not saying it's not important, but what I am saying is these dads took the exact opposite approach. They didn't get involved in politics. They didn't uh, try to find somebody to blame. What they said is, there's a problem. Let's get together and fix it. And they did. You want to have a show I'll listen to? Okay. Then get one of those, get in touch with one of those dads. I'd like to hear him on facts. I, that, that actually wouldn't be a bad idea for a segment. I'll see if I can. But my point in all of that was I did this segment because I want some people in the state of Alabama to hear it and to see what we just saw that, that report with CBS News and think, why can't I get involved? Why can't I start something yeah. like that? That was the point of me doing this whole thing. And, and I really do think that it would improve the state if we could have more parental involvement in the state. And it, luckily, we are in a state that I think there are at least several school systems that would welcome that. I would, wouldn't say all of them. And I think you're going to get some pushback. But um, my point is, this is something that you can do as a parent. That's true. Well, listen, I've enjoyed it. You take care. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, John Cockwood. You might know him as John from Millbrook. He's uh, with the uh, 
the he's with the Alabama FFA Foundation and uh, my dad and somebody that has taught a lot of school kids. So that's you, you can see after hearing him the reason that I thought that this would be a good time to bring him on. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us. As always, had a fantastic earlier part of the show interview with John Colquitt, my dad, and about education. So if you didn't catch it, I highly, highly recommend you go ahead and do that. But there is more local news, believe it or not, because, you know, we were gone for two weeks. So lots of things tend to build up when that happens. The latest is about the vaccine mandate and how it has been affecting some local people. Apparently, Coach Brian Harson, the head coach of my beloved Auburn Tigers, the only team that I love as much as the Atlanta Braves, as you can see from my uh, vestige and my background there. Coach Brian Harson actually will not say whether or not he is vaccinated. And this has become something that has been something of a point of contention amongst people here recently, and that is partly because we see that there is a mandate of all organizations or companies that get federal funding. And Auburn University gets federal funding. They have research grants and part of their you know, university is funded by the federal government and he is an employee of the university. Ergo, he does fall under the jurisdiction of the federal mandate. But he has not said he refuses to get the vaccine. He has said that he won't say whether or not he got the vaccine, which is slightly different. And I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. I, I mean, as far as the legal bit goes, I have a pretty good suspicion of how it's going to play out in actuality. But in case you're wondering about this, because you're probably sitting there thinking, but didn't Kay Ivey sign an executive order saying that it negated President Biden's mandate? Okay, so here's the thing. First of all, there are going to be a lot of people that will try to use the supremacy clause explaining that, well, it doesn't matter whether Kay Ivey does it or not, then it's not going to, to have any bearing legally because the, the federal government is supreme to the state government. If you've been a fan of mine for any amount of time, you know I don't subscribe to that legal theory. I'm not an incorporationalist and never have been. I have always believed in the Tenth Amendment and that any power not given directly to the federal government through the word of the Constitution, in other words, can't just make a federal law, you have to actually amend the Constitution if you want to change the powers of the federal government, then that is something that is left up to the states. So first of all, I don't believe that this power is unconstitutional whether or not the state does anything. But if it did, it is the state that is supreme in our country, not the federal government. Remember, the states made the federal government, not the other way around. They are not merely the affiliates of Washington, D.C. The states are sovereign. And as James Madison, the man who actually pinned the Constitution, said, the powers given to the federal government are extremely limited, whereas, and I know that's a paraphrase, but the powers that are given to the states are numerable and unlimited. So essentially, the state is sovereign. The federal government is very limited by the Constitution. It was always designed as a shackle. 
So actually, I believe that KIV does have recourse and could override this. So I'm not saying that the KIV mandate, uh, the, the uh, or mandate ban, I guess it actually would be, on whether or not you have vaccines. I'm not saying that it has no teeth because she's just a governor and Joe Biden is the president. That's not the case I'm making at all because I don't believe that. What I am saying is that this is a legally weak document. Basically, all the, the ban that Kay Ivey signed into law actually says, through her executive order, is that the state of Alabama is not going to go after or enforce the vaccine mandate. That does nothing. And the reason that I say it does nothing is because that is something that is directly going to be done by the federal government. They're going to be in charge of enforcing it. All Kay Ivey is saying is we're going to stay out of their way. We're not going to do the bidding of the federal government when it comes to this mandate. Uh, okay, but that doesn't stop the federal government from punishing organizations and going through and checking their vaccinated status themselves. And so essentially, this executive order does absolutely nothing. And I know that sometimes I'm harsh on Kay Ivey and I get a lot of nasty comments about that, but I'm just telling the truth, y'all. Read the document for yourself and tell me I'm wrong. All it says is the state organization as an entity, in other words, like ALEA and other law enforcement agencies, are forbidden from enforcing the mandate. It does not say that the federal government can enforce it. A state organization like Auburn University, by the way, the alma mater of our current governor, Kay Ivey, and also because she is the governor, sits on their board of trustees, is apparently going to do nothing about this. The only thing that she has done, and she knows because it's all about optics, it's not about actually doing anything that actually makes a difference. It's all about her just saying some nasty things about Joe Biden so people will vote for her. That's the extent of her concern with this thing. That's all that's going on here, people. She wants the optics of see, being seen as somebody who is opposing the vaccine mandate, but at the end of the day, the executive order she signed is 100% symbolic. It does nothing. All it could do theoretically is if you have somebody in the state government that's super gung-ho about it, it says that they can't be the enforcement arm. But that's really all it does. It does nothing to actually stop the vaccine mandates from being enforced on companies and organizations that are run by the state, like Auburn, that get federal dollars from being subject to this mandate. And so that's the first thing you have to understand because, you know, the average person might be reading this and be like, well, Kay Ivey has the executive order, so Brian Harson's off the hook anyway, right? No, unfortunately, that's not the case because her executive order does absolutely nothing. But Coach Harson has refused to say that he's, whether or not he's been vaccinated. And this came up, which I was not really thrilled about. Uh, you see this, I, I'm pretty sure this one was, yeah, it's Facebook, it's not Twitter. So, so this... Facebook post came up from Alabama News Network. Sound off. Despite Auburn University's new COVID-19 vaccine mandate, head football coach Brian Harson won't say whether or not he's been vaccinated. Harson tested positive for COVID-19 in August and risked being fired if he does not meet the December 8th deadline. Do you think Harson should publicly say whether or not he's been vaccinated? Okay, so a couple of things. It is true that Harson tested positive a little while back which, by the way, means he ought to be good for six months anyway. That because he did test positive for COVID and now hasn't, he should have better immunity than anybody that takes the vaccine, according to a study out of Israel, 27 times the level of immunity 
that the vaccine grants somebody. And so it would be a largely symbolic thing. And also, there is danger in taking these things too close to the time of your last infection. There are doctors, even doctors that have bought into the, the, the Covidian cult that is out there. Even some of those doctors are saying, okay, well, you should get vaccinated, but you probably shouldn't do it until about six months after you have had the, the virus itself because your body needs time. Like your body already has immunity and injecting this virus could actually, or in, injecting this vaccine into you could actually have negative effects if you do it too close to your last infection. So there's that on top of it. But what bothers me more about that, and I'm not putting all the blame squarely on Alabama News Network. I mean, that was obviously a clickbait status. But nonetheless, asking people to sound off on whether or not somebody should have to tell you whether or not they've been vaccinated, I'm really more bothered about the situation. Not saying that I, I hold no animosity towards Alabama News Network, because they shouldn't have done that. But that's a minor gripe. What I'm really concerned about here is because of this and because of everything that's gone on with the vaccine mandate, we have now, since 2020 and, and all this COVID junk started, we've created a society where we think that we are justified in asking people about their private medical decisions. That is something that bothers me. That now there are large pluralities of people that feel perfectly comfortable saying that such and such person ought to have to tell me whether or not he's had this vaccine or not. In a lot of ways, this pandemic has turned us against our neighbors. It has made us suspicious of our fellow Americans. And that is something that I think is really disturbing. That regardless of whether you stand on whether the vaccines are good or effective or not, and I, I've I've talked to people that are huge cheerleaders of them, and I've talked to people that are skeptics of them. But one thing that we should all be able to unite around is that those decisions should be primarily between you and your doctor, and ultimately up to you, regardless of what your doctor thinks. That is your decision. And it's really none of my business. I mean, it's your doctor's business because he acts as a medical advisor, not a you know a dictator that can tell you you have to get X, but somebody that advises you on medical decisions that you make, but ultimately the decision should be yours. And that's not really something that I'm all that concerned with. You know, even when I have these debates with people on the vaccine, whether or not they have had it or, or think it's good or whatever, I never ask them as like, well, have you had it? Because I don't care. And every other vaccine in human history I cared even less because there was nobody saying, well, my vaccine doesn't work if yours, if you haven't been vaccinated. No, I, you know, I, I don't go around asking people if they've been vaccinated for measles. You know why? Because I've been vaccinated for measles, so I don't care. The fact that it has been such a point of contention that there are people that feel perfectly comfortable saying that they ought to get to, or someone in the government ought to be able to ask questions about your medical decisions and make them for you and mandate certain ones. That is the thing that is truly disturbing here. And I'll say this with Coach Harson and, you know, Coach Tuberville, former head coach at the greatest university in all of human history, Auburn University. Uh, he actually opined on this because that post really got under my skin just because I don't think that it's my business to say whether or not Harson has to tell me whether or not he's been vaccinated or not. That's just, that's, 
That's not something that I'm concerned with one way or the other. And I think Coach Tuberville in this quote really hits the nail on the head. He says, I'm not going to get into the argument of whether he should or shouldn't, Tuberville said of Harson. I think he should just do the right thing, talk to the doctors, and I'm sure he's done that. That is the extent of what anybody should have to say about this particular conversation. Now, you want to debate whether or not the vaccines are, you know, have side effects or whether, you know, how they're effective they are or what they what effect they have had on the COVID numbers and, and cases and deaths and hospitalizations. All of that is open forum, willing to have that discussion with anybody. But whether or not an individual has to tell me whether or not he's taken it or be forced to take it through a mandate, now we're in territory that I don't want to have any part of. And there was a time where in America that was just kind of the way that we took it. I'll say this, though. Washington State's uh, Nick Rolovich, I think is the way to pronounce his name, he actually got fired over this. And so that's one of the reasons that a lot of people are worried right now that Harson might face a similar fate for, you know, shrugging off the mandate. Here's what I have to say about that. That was in Washington State. Think about that. Washington State, where just about everybody, it's, it's extremely deep blue. And they have all bought into the COVID panic porn. And on top of that, is that really like a, a bastion of football? Nah. You're going to put vaccine mandates in ruby red Alabama against college football? Brother, you're going to lose that fight. I don't care if the courts are on your side or not. If Auburn tries to fire Coach Harson over this, they are going to lose that fight hard. I don't think that they're actually going to reach that point. And I have no idea. Maybe Harson's even already got the vaccine. I don't know. Don't really care, like I said. But it's one thing to see a college football coach lose his job in Washington State where this is their religion. They're so bought into the COVID thing and so bought into the spirit of the age that they might as well, I mean, this would be like, you know, the, the Baptist denomination in the state of Alabama would be the only equivalent I can come up with. You're going to put college football, which is a pseudo-religion in the state of Alabama anyway, against vaccine mandates, which are wildly unpopular everywhere in the country, but even more so in Ruby Red, Alabama, good luck selling that to the people of Alabama. You're not going to win that fight. Even Alabama fans are going to dismiss that. And I say that, you know, just because they might not want to face Harson <laughs> on the football field. I don't even think they would support something like that. And that's my point. Harson is holding all the cards here. He has all the power, and I think he knows it. I think he realizes that. Even somebody that comes from Boise State, like now that he's in Auburn, the you know the mecca of football in the country, and I'm not talking about Auburn, the city specifically. I'm talking about the Southeastern Conference, really anywhere in the Southeast. College football is king, and you put it up against pretty much anything short of you know the actual church, you're going to lose that one. People are just too devoted to it for that to happen. So. I really do think the best the best note to end on is that Harson is doing exactly what he should be doing. And that is keeping his mind on football. Don't get bogged down in this political crap. 
There is no reason for you to engage in that point. He's not saying, no, I haven't taken it and I don't think it's a good thing. What he has done is he re has remained, at least thus far, completely apolitical about it. He said, like, nope, not going to tell anybody. Because he's too focused on trying to win football games, which is exactly what the coach should do. And I'd say the same thing about Nick Saban, even though I'm not an Alabama fan. Frankly, I think even Nick Saban would say that, even though he's a Democrat. His primary focus is winning football games, and that's the only thing I do care about when it comes to the uh, being the head coach at a college for a football team. I'm not saying that there aren't other concerns as well, but primarily that is the man's job. And getting involved in these petty political arguments, whether I agreed with them or not, that's not really what the head football coach should be doing anyway. And so I applaud Harson for actually taking the, the right stance on this one. Uh, let's go ahead and go to, I think I have time for this one. Yes, we do. Okay, good. Because I have been sitting on this one for a while. We're going to go ahead and do something, um, uh, another bit of local news here. So Mo Brooks is actually back in the national news, which I'm guessing probably doesn't surprise you. He's been one of our more vocal and, and more news. Uh, I guess he's been in more national news stories here recently because of his involvement with what happened on January 6th. And of course, that is going to be the case here. So just to provide a little bit of context, Mo Brooks was one of the people that actually spoke at the rally, I believe directly before President Trump did on January 6th. Now, this happened actually simultaneously. In fact, the president's speech wasn't even over when the first people broke into the Capitol. So these two groups are completely unconnected. People have tried really hard to connect them and make them seem as though they're the same people, but they're not. And that confusion is actually kind of where this story stems from. So you'll see here, this is a headline from Rolling Stone. I know, why is Rolling Stone paying attention to this and not like interviewing, I don't know, one of the Eagles or Stevie Nicks or something like I have no idea. I have no idea why they're involved in this. It seems a bit bizarre to me. But this is Rolling Stone and their headline, exclusive January 6th protest organizers say they participated in dozens of planning meetings with members of Congress and White House staff. Two sources communicating with White House investigators and detailed a, uh, detailed a stunning series of allegations to Rolling Stone, including a promise of a, quote, blanket pardon from the Oval Office. So a couple things here. First of all, you should know that when it says members of Congress, Mo Brooks is one of the ones listed in here, and so this affects him, but he's not the one that the allegation of a blanket pardon is going against. We'll get into that in a second. But the point here is, on its surface, looks pretty bad, right? Because by reading that headline and the little blurb directly under it, by reading that information, you would think what's going on here is it saying, oh, people breaking into the Capitol was planned. And the people that did so, they were having meetings with some members of Congress and they were given a promise of a pardon if they did this. Here's the problem with that, though. You're conflating two groups that were never together. You're conflating people that organized the protest and the rally that Mo Brooks did speak at and people that, completely unaffiliated, broke into the, the Capitol building. Now, again, I'm not trying to run cover for these people. I said, as it was happening, that these people were probably Trump supporters, just based on some of the images and some of the things that we were seeing as the story unfolded. And so I'm not trying to run cover for them or say, like, you know, those aren't people that were actually with the Trump. No, I'm not saying that. These people were 
legitimate Trump supporters that were upset about the election. There may have been some plants in there. I don't know. We'll have to, you know, if an investigation ever comes out about that, we may know a little bit more about that. But the point is there were legitimate Trump supporters in that group, but they are different Trump supporters than the ones that were actually at this rally. And what that headline is doing is it's trying to craft an idea in your head that Mo Brooks and other members of Congress were actually behind this thing and actually wanted people to break into the Capitol. But if you actually read this article, that's not what it's alleging. And the people at Rolling Stone know it. You see, the thing is, they want you to just read the headline and move on. That's why they crafted the headline in the way that they did. I'm a writer. And you can tell by looking at this thing, they specifically wrote it in such a way to give the wrong impression. They wanted you to think that the people smashing windows and putting their foot up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and stealing podiums and flags and that kind of thing, that that was something that was organized by members of Congress like Mo Brooks. But if you actually spent more than eight seconds, which by the way is the average amount of time that the average American spends reading a news story before posting, sharing, liking, that kind of thing. If you spent more time than that and actually read the contents of the article, you'll see that it's essentially a massive nothing burger. The, the headline is, is by far the part that makes it look the worst, but when you actually read some of the stuff being reported in there, you see that it's, it's really not doing that. And by the way, I think that this is even more true because Rolling Stone hid this behind the subscription wall. So in other words, unless you are an actual subscriber to Rolling Stone, you can't read the article at all. You can see the headline, you can see it shared on social media, but you can't actually read the article. And so even more than the usual clickbait thing, they have crafted a headline to mislead the public, knowing that the vast majority of people are not actually going to be able to read it. So let's go ahead and look at this next one. Uh, this is The Hill, which reports on that same Rolling Stone story. The Rolling Stone reported that Gosser floated the possibility of a, quote, blanket pardon that could be available to those planning the protest, with one of the two pro uh, sources saying, our impression was that it was a done deal, that he'd spoken to the president about it in the Oval, in a meeting about pardons that our names, again, this is the people organizing the protest, came up that they were working on submitting the paperwork and getting members of the House Freedom Caucus to sign as a show of support, the source added. The source said Gosser offered several assurances about the pardons. So before I actually get into the content of this particular report, I want to point something out to you. You know that they just say the source? The reason is because the source of this news story are two anonymous sources. These are people that claim to be protest organizers, and maybe they actually are, we don't know. But the point is, they refuse to give their names or identify themselves in any way other than just saying that they were sourced. So we've got two anonymous sources making these allegations, which should be a pretty strong red flag right off the bat. That doesn't mean that anonymous source stories are always wrong. But we're going to need more to go on to actually believe that the stuff in the story is real. Now, this can be a good catalyst to find out if what they are saying is true, and hopefully the facts on that will come out from a non-anonymous source, but as long as anonymous sources are all that you're basing it off of, I'm going to need more than that. I'm sorry. I don't trust that 
the people that are not even willing to give their own names to blow the, the whistle off this thing, to, to blow this story up, are actually who they claim they are unless I see who it actually is. And so already you see a massive reason not to believe what the story is saying. But even if what the sources are saying is actually true, you have to remember that these are protest organizers, not people that actually stormed the Capitol. And so it's talking about two completely different things. So if I, as a congressperson, and I'm not saying that this would be the right thing to do, but if I, as a congressperson, said to you, a protester, look, anything that's going to happen, we're going to give you a blanket pardon for that. Okay, that's still pretty bad. But that is not an indication that they knew that they were going to be engaged in illegal activity. And if you were planning an actual insurrection where you take over the government, which is what was being alleged by people on the left and in this article, why would you need the pardon? Seriously, if you're just going to take over the government and Trump's going to be dictator from now to the end of time, the pardon's completely unnecessary. The winning side doesn't need a pardon in, a res in, in, in an insurrection. You understand that, right? And so that's what's so funny about this whole thing is that even if every single word of this story is true, it still amounts to absolutely nothing. No illegal activity, you know, not good stuff necessarily, but not necessarily something that you could, because that doesn't mean that you know for a fact they're going to commit illegal activity. And another thing too, this happened not with the entire list of Congress people they claimed they were planning this with. They only claimed that Gosner was the only person that actually said this. And they also say that they got the impression that that is what had happened that President Trump had been contacted about this and he was going to give them a blanket pardon for anything they might do in the protest. You'll notice that even those sources did not say that he absolutely did this. They said that th that was the impression that they got. That's it. And so you've got two anonymous sources saying that they perceived something in a certain way. Therefore, it must be that the whole January 6th thing was planned. And again, these are people that were organizing the protest, not breaking into the Capitol in the first place. It's rare that you see a news story with so little to go on as this one. And maybe this is an indication of why Rolling Stone should keep to interviewing, you know, rock stars and people like that and not actually pretending to be a journalistic organization. But furthermore, um, even if this were true, Mo Brooks is not in trouble because Gosner is the only one that is even alleged to do something kind of shady. I don't even think that that would actually be illegal. But Mo Brooks isn't even being accused of that. And yet Rolling Stone and some of our local media decided to go after him. So let's go ahead and look at the follow-up to this article that Rolling Stone put out. This is the headline that they specifically singled out Mo Brooks. They said Representative Mo Brooks admits staff may have helped plan January 6 events and said that he'd be proud of them if they did. Again, this is a headline that is crafted to look really terrible, but when you actually know what's in the story and know what's in the previous story that they wrote about this, you know that it doesn't prove a thing. Because when it says events on January 6th, you'll notice they didn't say the rally or the protest. They said events. 
In other words, they kept it intentionally vague to try to make the reader think when he saw it that what was actually being discussed here is Mo Brooks is saying, oh, yeah, I would be proud if some of my people were involved in the planning of people breaking into the Capitol. That's what they're hoping that the reader is dumb enough to think just by seeing that headline and not actually read the content of the article. And, and frankly, the second follow-up article is actually worse and built on even less than the first one is. So this is AL.com who records what Mo Brooks actually said versus what the headline there alleges. And even though I'm pretty harsh on AL.com on a fairly regular basis, props to them for at least including Mo Brooks' actual statement in their news story. And this is Mo Brooks talking. I had no intentions of going to that rally until January 5th when the White House asked me to speak, Brooks said, adding that the date marked the beginning of his involvement in the rally. So in other words, Mo Brooks hadn't even been involved in this thing for 24 hours when he got the call and they asked him to be involved. The congressman said he could not say whether his staff interacted with the two anonymous Rolling Stone sources only identified as an organizer and a planner of the January 6th rally and other protests because he had not spoken to them about it. So in other words, what he's saying here is he was only involved here for a day and they ask him, well, were you involved in the people that were interviewed by Rolling Stone? And he said, well, I don't know because they're anonymous sources. Um, well, yeah, that's exactly what should have been said because they're an anonymous source, so he can't possibly know whether or not he talked to the, his staff talked to them or not. And then Mo Brooks continues on in his quote here. Quite frankly, I'd be proud of them if they did help organize a First Amendment rally to protest voter fraud and election theft, Brooks said of his staff. So again, it's very clear in that statement that what Mo Brooks is talking about is not people breaking into the Capitol. He's specifically talking about the rally that he was involved in, the one that happened about a 20-minute walk away from where the Capitol was being broken into while Trump was speaking, again, I might add. He's saying that he'd be proud of his staff helping organize the rally that was there to protest voter fraud. He's not saying anything about people breaking into the Capitol or that he would be proud of his staff for helping organize that because that's not what he was talking about. But Rolling Stone is trying to drum up this idea that that's exactly what he meant with this fake news headline. If you want a, a, like a, a classic textbook case of face news, uh, fake news, this is exactly it. And they even say in the same article um, that Mo Brooks, well, he, he said that it's possible that his staff could have been involved in the planning. He's saying that he can't identify these two people because they don't have names, you knucklehead. That would be like coming up to me and saying, uh, hey, Caleb, did any of your students there at Faulkner, have they ever talked to this person? I don't know. What's that person's name? Well, we don't know what the name is. Well, then how am I supposed to know whether or not the student talked to him or not, genius? That's what's going on here with Mo Brooks. They're saying, did any of your staff talk to these people? And Mo Brooks is saying, I, I don't know who these people are. So I couldn't possibly tell you if some random person on my staff talked to them. And yet in the Rolling Stone article that was a reaction to that statement, they try to say, well, he's saying that it's possible that he helped in the planning. His, his staff didn't know about it until the day of because he didn't even know about it until the day before it happened. And so they're trying so hard to pin Mo Brooks to this and saying that, you know, Trump and Mo Brooks and all these people planned the breaking into the Capitol, but it's just based on absolutely nothing. 
And one final thing that I'll show you here too. This was also, I thought, pretty funny. This was Rolling Stone again trying to smear Mo Brooks in that follow-up article. Here, Rolling Stone actually said, Brooks, quote, for some strange reason from that article, reportedly wore body armor while he spoke at the rally at Ellipse preceding the riot at the Capitol. There's also that. And you can tell by the language here that the author has a disdain for him and he's trying to suggest, ah, see, Mo Brooks knew something was going to happen because he wore body armor. You do know that Mo Brooks is a congressperson, right? Speaking at an open event where there could be snipers hiding anywhere. It is not at all uncommon for congresspeople when they do speeches like this or really public appearances of any kind to wear body armor. It might also be pertinent for this idiot writing for Rolling Stone to note that Mo Brooks has also been shot at. You remember a few years ago when there was the shooting that happened at the softball stadium? That wasn't even a public event. That was just some random nut job with a rifle that tried to kill a bunch of senators and congressmen. And remember that Mo Brooks was right there with Representative Steve Scalise and probably saved his life just because he happened to be nearby and used his own belt as a tourniquet to, to stop the bleeding. And so not only do you have the fact that this is a very common practice by public officials and famous people when they do speaking events, especially if you're a congressperson and people might want to assassinate you, but on top of that, Mo Brooks is a person that has actually survived a shooting at an event that wasn't even public. And we're supposed to act like, oh, well, he was wearing body armor. He must have known there were going to be some riots breaking out. This person's an idiot. They're trying so hard to connect this to the Republicans or try to make it that it was planned. They're grasping at straws and they will take literally anything. You can see anything that they think might be kind of construed. They just salivate over it. And it's so funny because the language in that quote, you can even tell that the guy's got nothing. He's like, well, he also, for some strange reason, wore body armor. So yeah, there's that. So what? If you have if you did your job and actually knew that this was a very common thing that Congress people do, and also that Mo Brooks specifically has been somebody that has been through an event like this, you might understand a little more why he wears body armor pretty much all the time. I've actually seen Mo Brooks at events where I knew he was wearing body armor. Not that he and I are all that close, but... I've seen him at public events where I could tell he was wearing body armor. So it's not like this is the only time where that happened. And this guy trying to allege that that means that Mo Brooks knew something and was preparing for something, that person's just a moron. There's really no kinder way to say that. That would be like saying, oh yeah, see that, see that congressperson? He's putting on a seatbelt. He must be going out there planning on wrecking his car and driving it into somebody. Or... You know, in this case, it would be more appropriate to say uh, after the car wreck happened. Ah, see, see, this person, they uh, they were wearing their seatbelt, so obviously they were intending to drive their car into that pole. No, it's a safety precaution. It's not bizarre or strange or an indication that they knew something ahead of time to see somebody wearing a seatbelt. That's just ridiculous. And you see junk like this, which is, like I said, just the epitome of fake news, and yet somehow the media still can't figure out how 
it is that nobody trusts them. It shall forever be a mystery. I wonder why. When you try to make stories up out of nothing because it fits a political narrative, and it's blatantly obvious you had nothing to go on but ran with it anyway, that's what fake news is, people. And I'm someone that just doesn't throw that phrase around like a lot of people on my side of the aisle do. Like Trump did for a lot of things that really wasn't fake news. It was just news he didn't agree with. But when I use fake news in this context, I mean it's actually fake news. And I think that the facts of the story really do back that up. But anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Let's see, I think we've got time to do this. Yeah, um, let's go ahead and move on and we'll go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. You messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today, oh, okay, there we go. Sorry, my monitor went off for a second. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, as you can see, I was somebody that was quite invested in the World Series for the Atlanta Braves. And it is an incredible story, and I talked about that a little bit earlier. This is just a team that just pulled together, and nobody would have picked them to win the World Series, especially after all the things that happened to this team. But they really coalesced and, and made, you know, just kind of made a meal out of scraps and leftovers and wound up beating everybody else out of it. And I, I got to say, I love them for it. It was so much fun to watch this team over the entirety of the season. But it's even more important when you realize that very early in the year, Major League Baseball actually moved the All-Star game. And so to watch Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, have to stand there after he pulled millions of dollars in revenue out of Atlanta over something that, first of all, the Atlanta Braves had nothing to do with, the, the new Georgia voter law, and second of all, was a complete lie because it actually expanded voter access, didn't restrict it. And it was really funny, too, for nobody wanted to take the blame for that. Like, the second that they actually pulled the All-Star game, Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden tried really hard to distance themselves. Like, oh, well, we didn't have anything to do with that. Yet, you do realize that in the letter that the commissioner said, it, part of their justification was that it was at the recommendation of the White House. Yeah. So there you go. Um, it was funny that as soon as they actually did that, everybody wanted to distance themselves from it because they realized it looked really stupid to pull, you know, millions of dollars worth of revenue out of a majority black city and take it to a, a town like Denver where there's like five black people in the entire town. <laughs> so anyway, there was that. So there, there is just like a huge level of irony there that Manfred, you know, who was trying his best to to bow down to the woke mob, then has to, just a few months later, award the World Series trophy to the Atlanta Braves. I mean, that was just, ah, it was just so good to see that happen. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd love for the Braves to win the World Series every year, but just watching this be a massive middle finger to the commissioner of baseball, who is by far the worst commissioner of baseball in Major League Baseball's history, uh, just watching that happen after he caved to the woke mob and then has to go to Atlanta for three of the World Series games and has to present them with the World Series trophy. Oh, that was just, you couldn't have asked for a better year for it to happen than this year because so much unfairness had happened. It was almost like the 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 universe was a, a writing itself or something like that. I think uh, maybe there was even a little divine providence in it. I don't know. Maybe God has a sense of humor and wanted to do that, but there were quite a few other controversies that surrounded this Braves team uh, that happened throughout the week because of this. One that I wanted to bring some attention to, which I thought was really funny, this happened in game one uh, that actually took place in Houston. There was a guy holding up a sign here, 
obviously an Astros fan, that says, the chop is racist. Now, you guys know I'm a classically trained debater. I can debate just about anybody, and I can debate really either side of an issue just because it's part of my training. But sometimes the best answers to arguments are the simplest. The best way to defeat this argument, this claim, is to ask how. How is it racist? Use the Socratic method on somebody. If someone says to you that the chop that the Atlanta Braves do, you know, the tomahawk chop, is racist, just ask them how. Because I've yet to hear a good, solid answer on that. I've heard people try to piddle around and come up with something. But there's that. And then I also love the fact that, again, it is not an actual Native American that's upset about this, even though it would be just as stupid for a Native American to say this. Because uh, they, you know, wrong is wrong regardless of who's saying it. But it's not a Native American. It's not somebody that grew up on a reservation or anything like that. You know who's upset about this? An old white guy. <laughs> and I'm assuming he's a liberal based on his stance of, of the chop being racist somehow. I still haven't figured out how that is the case. But on top of that, this is a guy who probably has quite a bit of money because, you know, World Series tickets are in the several thousands of dollars. And if you can do that to spend one night, spend on one night of baseball, probably doing okay in the financial market too. So here we have yet again another rich white liberal who is very upset about the Native Americans. And what's hilarious is, as it usually is, they wind up hurting the very people that they claim to care about. Because the Braves work together and do a lot of charity with the Cherokee Nation. Let's say that they had to stop the chop and they had to get rid of the, the Braves' memorabilia and everything else, you think that they would continue to do that? You would actually be taking money and, and charitable donations and you know good PR, if nothing else, with the Cherokee Nation away from them if the Braves just did what the Cleveland Indians did and changed their name to something generic and non-offensive. That is what would happen, make no mistake. And so it's just funny to me that it's a bunch of old, white, angry, rich liberals that are very upset about how oppressed Native Americans are. And I've said this before. I probably don't have to repeat it, but I'll say it again because I do think it's so profound. One thing that is so funny about this is that I've had people, because I am a Braves fan and because I'm a conservative, say stuff about this all the time. And actually, we're going to take a look in, in a second about another liberal that had an issue with this. The allegation is always that it is somehow racist. But what they don't seem to understand is when it comes to sports, when you make something your mascot and you imitate that, that is a form of tribute and flattery. Because there is not a team anywhere that named themselves after something that they hate. They named themselves something that's cool or funny or interesting or cute something that they like and want to pull for. For example, our AA affiliate right here of the Tampa Bay Rays in Montgomery are the Montgomery Biscuits. Why do you think we name them the Biscuits? Is it because we hate biscuits? No, we really like biscuits, probably a little too much. I know I fall into that category. I love biscuits. That's why we named them that, because we like the biscuits and pull for them and want them to win. When you pull for a sports team, you're wanting whatever that mascot is that is something to root for. It's a tribute. It's something that you think is cool. 
the reason that you had the Redskins and the Indians and the Atlanta Braves are specifically because we thought that the Native American, you know, the, the tribe and the pageantry and everything that goes around with it, this is true of the FSU Seminoles and, and other teams the same way. We thought it was a cool thing and wanted to pull for it. That's the reason that we were on board with it in the first place. And so it's just so silly to suggest that this is somehow racist. The Braves also asked Travis Tritt to sing the anthem during Game 6 of the National League Championship, and this became kind of a thing. So recently, the reason that this became a big news story is this Travis Tritt, uh, he recently got in the spotlight for opposing vaccine mandates, which apparently is the greatest cardinal sin a person can commit nowadays. Not against the vaccines themselves, just against the vaccine mandates, because what he said was he would not perform at a venue that, re that was going to be checking people's vaccinated status. And so, you know, guy can do what he wants. And he says he has freedom of association, just like everybody else says, if a venue is going to do that, I'm just not going to sing at that venue. And so because of this, the people on the left took great issue with this. And so we'll go ahead and, and look at Travis Tritt, who actually tweeted out about this. So the wingnut cancel culture tried to pressure the Atlanta Braves into forcing me not to sing the national anthem at game six of the National League Championship Series. I'm so thankful that the Braves did not cave to this pressure and refuse to be bullied. Thank you for allowing me to pay tribute to America. So I do appreciate Travis Tritt, you know, giving kudos where they are deserved. And he's right. The Braves could have caved to cancel culture or just uh, gotten rid of him because of that. But they refused to do that. And I really appreciate them for doing so. I'll say this. This proves something that I've been saying for a very long time. The right is more tolerant than the left and always has been. And part of it is especially true when it comes to entertainment because we have to do it more. You know, you look at Hollywood, the vast majority of people that are actors, performers, singers, artists, musicians, vast majority of them are super liberal. But that does not stop conservatives from enjoying their art. And the reason that it doesn't is because we've just gotten used to it. And frankly, I think we are naturally more tolerant. Okay, you believe that. I think you're completely wrong, but it doesn't mean I can't buy your CD. It doesn't mean I can't go see your movie with my family. Now, sometimes we will make exceptions to that rule, but by and large, the right is far more tolerant about that than the left is. Because with the right, we have to deal with that pretty much all the time. With the left, it happens one time and they freak out about it. I mean, like a whole bunch of people on the, the left are going to see Travis Tritt anyway, but they get very upset about that and don't think that he should be allowed to sing at Game 6 of the National League Championship Series. Again, the right is just more tolerant than the left. And there was this follow-up tweet that came from a New York Times reporter this is Rob Tannenbaum who was tweeting out about it. Travis Tritt has, a, has had a lot of hits in his day, but his last top 10 single was almost 20 years ago. His politics are the only reason the Braves booked him. He's the closest they can come to the tomahawk chop in human form. Okay, so first of all, before we get into the utter ridiculousness of what he's suggesting, let's actually see if what he is saying is true. One thing he seems to not really understand is that when it comes to these things, they're largely honorary, and actually it's pretty common to have stars that are a little bit past their heyday to do them. 
not because the people are not talented, because they're still just as talented in most cases as they were back then, but they're not the hot thing right now. And because of that, they have more free time and can do things that are non-paying gigs like sing the national anthem at a baseball game. So this is a pretty common thing that happens. He's acting like if they're not a top 10 recording artist that's at the top of the charts right now, then obviously the only reason that they would ever have to book him must be because, you know, he's a conservative and, and they're wanting to do the chop and the tomahawk chop in human form, which again, I don't even see why anyone finds that offensive. Every person I've ever met that had a problem with it was an old white angry liberal. So, you know, <laughs> there's that, first of all. But the second part of that is Jack Ingram. He actually sang another country singer. He actually sang the anthem before game six of the American League Championship Series in Boston. So also game six, different league, but also the championship series, the playoffs. And Jack Ingram, a country recording artist. Pretty good one-to-one -one comparison there, right? Well, actually, Jack Ingram, the last time he had a top 100 hit, not a top 10 like this guy was alleging, a top 100 hit, anything in the top 100, was wherever you are at number 31 in 2006. So, obviously, the uber, uber red state of Massachusetts and the very red city of Boston, one of the most liberal cities in the country, their team obviously only booked this guy because he's a giant middle finger to cancel culture, right? I mean, there had to be some kind of political motivation because this guy doesn't even come close to the level of accomplishment that Travis Tritt has. So the allegation he's making there is just based on absolutely nothing. People that are a little bit past their prime tend to be the people that occupy these spots. And, you know, you're comparing this. This guy has nowhere near the, the musical career that Travis Tritt does. And so I don't think that you could conclude based on the available evidence that the Braves only picked this guy because he stood against cancel culture. But I will say this, if they did, good, good. They should have. Everything the Braves have done this season should have been a giant middle finger to cancel culture after they got canceled. And if you don't like the fact that they're doing these things or making these decisions politically, if you're on the left and that bothers you, maybe it's a time to look in the mirror because they got canceled and maybe this is retaliation. I don't know, but if it is fine. See, here's the thing. I actually want sports to be apolitical. I really do. I want sports to be completely free of that. And that, you know, because I'm a Braves fan, I can sit down and talk baseball with you, regardless of whether or not you're a Republican or Democrat who you voted for the, your stance on certain issues. That shouldn't matter because we're just there to enjoy a baseball game together. See, sports used to be something that unified us. And if you were around the water cooler, you know, talking to your coworkers, it didn't really matter whether or not he was a Republican or a Democrat because you could still talk about, you know, what happened on the Tonight Show last night or, you know, your favorite baseball or football team. We don't have that avenue anymore and we're losing our common spaces specifically because you guys had to make everything political. You're acting like we're the aggressors in this. And I say we because it's the Atlanta Braves, but I don't know if the Atlanta Braves made this call because of that or not. What I am saying is if they did, you guys are the ones that started it. You're the ones that wanted to bring politics into everything, painting Black Lives Matter on NBA courts and putting Black Lives Matter messages 
in end zones. And, you know, the whole thing with the uh, Colin Kaepernick and kneeling thing or uh, players coming in. And you guys are the ones that wanted to politicize every aspect of our society. So you can't act all surprised about this. You can't step into the boxing ring and throw some punches and then get mad when the other guy retaliates. And so if they did this, that's fine. You canceled them first. You can't get mad at them for making this political because you're the one that started the political dance back and forth. I'd be fine with every sports team just agreeing, you know what, we're a baseball company. There's no reason for us to get involved in this crap. But you guys are the ones that started this. Don't dish it out if you can't take it. And so that would just be the way that I would stand on it. You know, there were similar questions sort of in the reverse on uh, Tim Allen and why he isn't voicing Buzz Lightyear because Tim Allen has come out recently as a conservative. He's kind of a conservative folk hero at this point. His show, Last Man Standing, I don't even think the show itself was all that conservative, but it was one that did not portray conservatives as idiots or evil. And because of that, liberals hated it and wanted it off the air. But he's not going to be voicing Buzz Lightyear, even though he's been voicing the character since 1995. And he's the, the only one that has ever voiced Buzz Lightyear in a movie. There have been other voice actors that did video games and that kind of thing. But as far as the movie goes, he's the only person that's ever voiced Buzz Lightyear. The new Lightyear movie coming out doesn't feature him as the voice. Instead, they have, I think it's Chris Evans, who, you know, Captain America. So he's going to be doing that. And so there were similar questions. And I don't know if this was political or not. I have no idea. I don't really understand why you would get anybody that isn't Tim Allen to voice Buzz Lightyear for this, but maybe that decision wasn't political either. But what I'm saying is now we have gotten to the point to where we have to question if there's some kind of political motive between uh, decisions that ha should have nothing to do with politics. And that is something that is truly unfortunate. And can you blame conservatives for thinking that might have played a role considering the way that he was treated and the way that his show was treated and the, you know, the countless articles that I saw written about Last Man Standing and how dangerous it is and how terrible it is. Can you really blame conservatives after they've had so many people be canceled to, to wonder if maybe that's the reason that you didn't reach out to Tim Allen to play the role that he's been playing since 1995? By the way, the the last time the Braves won the World Series. Uh, you, you can't act all surprised that they're worried about that or think that that might have been it. I mean, they did cancel Last Man Standing and wrote countless hit pieces on it. Maybe that was part of the motivation. I don't know. But I want to get back to the point to where entertainment is just entertainment. That's really what I would like to go back to. But there was one last thing, one little last little bit of controversy with the World Series and it had to do with PETA. So this came out earlier this week. I love this tweet. PETA says, Bullpen refers to the area of the bull's pen where the bulls were held before they were slaughtered. It's a word with speciesist roots. And we can do better than that. Switching to arm barn would be a home run for baseball fans, players, and animals. Let's liberate the language we use in baseball. All right, so let's ignore the fact that this is stupid for just a second. Let, let's just pretend it's serious and, and do an actual fact check on it just for funsies. Uh, 
where are you getting the idea that the bullpen is where the bulls were held before they were slaughtered? Because I can tell you as someone who raised cattle myself and has an ag degree from one of the most prestigious land-grant colleges in the country, what you're talking about simply does not exist. There are pens where cattle are held before they are slaughtered and processed, but they are not called bullpens. Do you know why they are not called bullpens? Because they're typically not populated with bulls. They're populated with steers, and they're not called the steer pen either. They're just a pen. You know, you can direct cattle there when they're about to be taken to be slaughtered, but what they're talking about, they're, they're held there before they're slaughtered? No, they're, I don't know a single ag person that refers to feedlots and the pens that cattle are kept in as bullpens because there's almost never any bulls in there. There's some because, you know, you got to kill a bull at some point. But the thing is, you don't usually want to eat a bull. You save a bull and you don't slaughter him for a long time because you're trying to profit off of the semen and use him to breed your cows. And so the vast majority of cattle that are slaughtered, I mean, we're talking like 99% here. The vast majority of cattle that are slaughtered aren't bulls anyway. And so no ag person would actually refer to it as a bull pen. And so PETA's just pulling crap out of nowhere. They're, they're just pulling something out of thin air that has absolutely no basis in truth whatsoever. But if you know the actual origins of the phrase bullpen, you know that there are several different theories, you know, historians and, and baseball scholars somewhat disagree on whether or not this was true or not. But a lot of people believe that the phrase bullpen actually came from bull dorm tobacco because they had these signs that they made up that they would place. It was an early form of sort of billboard advertisement. And because chewing tobacco has a close association with baseball, they advertised in basically every podunk little baseball stadium all over the place. And they had to hang the sign somewhere. And so one of the places that it was very commonly hung was in the area right where the pitchers were warming up. And so after time, some people speculated that that was where the phrase bullpen came from because it had Bull Durham advertising on the pen. There's another somewhat less popular theory that it could be the area where fans would shuffle in if they were late to the game. And that would also be the same area where later in the game, pitchers that were warming up would use because, you know, they didn't have individual places to warm up back then. They didn't have the, the fancy bullpens that are like enclosed now and everything else. And so because of that, a lot of people speculated that these same areas where people would shuffle in, you know, sort of these walkways, they kind of looked like cattle being herded in. And so because of that, they said, oh, it's like a bullpen. That theory doesn't hold a whole lot of weight with me, primarily because of the thing that I just said, that you usually don't have a ton of bulls. You usually have more steers or cows depending on what kind of operation that you have. But regardless, the Bull Durham theory is the one that most baseball scholars agree is actually the case. But let's get back to the actual ridiculousness of this thing. Arm barn? You guys supposedly workshopped this and arm barn. That was the best you could come up with. Now, trying to think about this as a PETA person would, wouldn't a barn also be a place where animals are held as livestock animals before they're slaughtered? Why is it the word barn offensive? I mean, it's just as much a place of confinement as pens are, so why? 
again, I'm, I'm trying to get inside their own backwards twisted version of logic. And even with that, I still can't make sense of arm barring. I don't know. I will tell you, my friends had a really good time with this because we read this tweet at the beginning of the week when it came out. And for like the rest of the time when we talk about the series, like, hey, there's pictures in the arm barn. <laughs> Maybe that was their plan. Maybe they were going to make it so silly and ridiculous. The baseball fans used it as a joke and then it actually turned that into the name. I don't know. But regardless, I will say with that story and with everything else, I just really wish people would keep politics out of baseball. I like baseball. I like it being an escape. Politics is my job. And even for people who politics is not your job, you probably don't want to hear about and think about politics while you're watching a ball game of some kind. So can we all just agree, like, you know, maybe maybe them calling in Travis Tripp was a, a move to be a slap in the face to cancel culture? I don't know. But if so, first of all, okay. But second of all, can it just be like a mutually assured dis destruction thing where we all just agree, let's just keep, let's just keep politics out of baseball. That's what I'm actually wanting for. But before we move on, congratulations to the Atlanta Braves. You guys deserved it. It was such a fun series. And looking forward to y'all going forward in the future. We have a whole offseason to celebrate the fact that the Atlanta Braves are the first time since 1995 are world champions. And I'm pretty stoked about that. Let's go to the Chaplain's Report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today is going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. So I want you to remember in the last piece of, of passage that we read that David has come across Nabal, who is a man that lives up in the mountains. He's a Calebite, so he is a descendant of Caleb, who we see is a very important figure in the books of Joshua and, and parts of the Torah as well. And so he is not really a nice person. David has shown him this, this great kindness and, and helped him out. And Nabal's reaction to this is just, yeah, um, I don't know who you are, and b basically insults him and says, who are you? Who is the son of Jesse? Screw you. Get out of here. I'm not giving you anything for helping me out. And it really is unfortunate because David gets very upset about this. He is ready to go on the warpath. He is ready to take Nabal out for this slight and insult. And really, as I discussed in the last chaplain's report, neither one of these two men reacted in the right way. I love David. I think he's one of the best characters in the Bible, but this is not David's finest hour by any stretch of the imagination. He lets his anger, his wrath, and his pride get the better of him. And so now we see ourselves at this sort of fulcrum in the story. There's a lot of tension where Nabal has slighted David. David has already got his men ready. They've, they've got their swords armed and they're about to go and take Nabal and his household out. And so this is a fascinating little episode that happens in between all of that, and we'll look to 1 Samuel 25, verses 14 through 17 for this. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he spoke to them in anger. Yet the men were very good to us, and were not harmed, nor did any go missing as long as we went with them while we were in the fields. That referring, of course, to their sheep, because these people are shepherds. 
they were all they were a wall to us both by night and by day all the time we were with them tending the sheep now then be aware and consider what you should do because harm is plotted against our master and against all of his household he is and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him now i want you to keep in mind this is a young man who is a servant of nabal and he sees that his master has done something incredibly stupid, which is kick the hornet's nest when the hornets were actually trying to be nice. You know, you, you hear the testimony there. and You notice how he describes David's treatment of them. He says, these people were actually staying up all night with us. They were a wall to us. They were making sure none of our sheep got lost. They were protecting us. They, they've been nothing but good to us. And then when David goes and requests some supplies from Nabal, Nepal's first reaction is to insult him and tell him to get out. And so you can understand, I'm not saying that this justifies David's behavior, but you can understand, especially after that testimony of this young person that was actually there and saw how David was treating these people, you kind of get why David was pretty ticked. He took his own resources and his own men and did this act of great kindness to help Nabal and his herdsmen out. And then when David just requests some basic necessities to repay the favor, Nabal not only says no, but actually goes out of his way to insult him when doing so. And so you can understand why David's a little hot under the collar, not justifying his actions, but you get it. And isn't it interesting that this young man uh, who is seeing this kindness out of David, and David probably extended that kindness because he is a shepherd himself, somebody that knew how to tend sheep and had done it for the majority of his life before you know, becoming a soldier and a man of war, he was, he was a sheep herder. And so that, that's probably part of the reason that David is doing this and helping them out. That This young man who sees all of that and sees the way that David and his men have been treating them and how they have, out of the goodness of their hearts and gaining nothing from it, done all of this for their benefit. Why does this service go to Abigail? Why is it that he goes there instead of to Nabal? Well, we don't have to speculate much on this because the scripture actually tells us, it says, he is a worthless man. And at the end of that, it actually says, no one can speak to him. In other words, this is a guy that when his mind is made up, you can't talk to him. He didn't go to Nabal because he knew it wouldn't do any good. And now his life and the life of his fellows are in danger. And so he doesn't go to Nabal. He goes to Nabal's wife. Abigail, because evidently he thought that he would get results out of talking to her where he wouldn't get the same results talking to this guy in the ball. I think that, that speaks volumes about not only the kind of people that Nabal and Abigail are, that, that Nabal is this rich, pompous, arrogant person that doesn't return kindness, that doesn't help people out, and is known by people of his own household as somebody that is so stubborn that it doesn't do any good to talk to him or try to convince him when he's made up his mind. You see, Abigail is apparently somebody that is more open and more sensible and can be reasoned with and actually sees kindness and rewards it. See, because if she weren't that kind of person, this servant would have had no reason to go to her in the first place. The kind of person that you are is seen by others. It affects them. 
and it changes their behavior. The reason this guy chose to go to Abigail and not to his master is because they had a reputation. He had been with both of these people. He had been around them. He knew how they were. You are probably missing out on quite a few opportunities you would not have otherwise if you are a person like Naval, somebody that's stubborn, somebody that people don't think of as reliable, don't think of as worthwhile. Whereas Abigail is somebody that people come to with their problems because they know that she'll listen and might actually do something about it. She's somebody that's seen as more reliable. And I want you to think about this. In a marriage, who's supposed to be that person? Not saying that women can't be, because obviously in this story, Abigail is. I'm saying that the man is supposed to be the person that is primarily responsible for that. He's supposed to be the leader, the face of the family. That's the reason that David sent somebody to Naval instead of his wife is because that's supposed to be how this interaction is going to work. But Nabal is so ungodly and has so little concern for others that he is incapable of leading his house. He's supposed to be the leader. And yet people are sneaking around his back and going to his wife because he's not a good leader. See, the servant actually did the right thing because he anticipated correctly what was going to happen here. And he saved some lives by going to Abigail instead. And so what has happened here is that because of the kind of person Nabal is, he has abdicated his role as the leader of his house. And we could sit here and think about, well, maybe the servant should have shown him more respect. Well, it doesn't seem as though that's merited based on what we know. So what I'm trying to say to you is don't be in a ball. Be the kind of person in your family, whether you're a dad or an older brother or even just a younger brother. If you have a leadership role in your family, live up to that role. Because Nabal did it, and it almost cost his entire family their lives. Now, I'm not saying that David should have done that or gone through with it. But he came very close to losing everything he had because he wasn't that leader. And it is only because there was someone who was a better leader than him in his household that they are able to avert disaster. And we'll get into that in our next lesson. But the point is, men, if you want respect, if you want people to come to you with their problems and you to be thought of as a problem solver, somebody that can fix things, which guys love and should, because that's the way that God designed us, you have to be the kind of person that is willing to listen to them to hear their problems, and to hear their suggested solutions. See, Nabal has not listened to anybody. He hasn't listened to Abigail. He hasn't listened to David or the representative that David sent. And he apparently doesn't listen to anybody else because that's the way that he's characterized here. If you want to have that level of respect, you have to command it. You have to be the kind of person that people know that not only can they go to you with their problems, but that you'll listen and pay attention and try to help them. You'll try to fix it. You don't become so self-involved and arrogant that you either write them off and don't listen or you listen, but it doesn't change your mind because you already know everything anyway, right? That's the problem Nabal ran into. And if we need to be the kind of godly men that God designed us to be, the leaders of our households, then we can't do that. That's a losing strategy. 
And what's going to happen there is there's going to be a breakdown in the chain of command. Because people will know that they can't trust you. They're going to start going to places that really that's not their job. Really, Abigail should have never had to deal with this because the ball should have taken care of it in the first place. And that's the problem that we've run into. And on a less important but still significant note, I think it's also important to note that hospitality is a quality that men are supposed to embody in their own way as well. We typically think of women as being the ones that are in charge of hospitality, and, you know, it makes sense. They, they tend to be better at that than us. But there's also a sense in which men are supposed to be hospitable and open as well. We think about Abraham and the way that he welcomed the angels, the messengers of God into his household, and um, Sarah even helped with that, but he was the one that made sure their needs were taken care of. Lot did the same thing when angels visited him right before the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I could name, you know, several other examples here. David actually would be an example of hospitality later in his life when he had a, an abundance and things that he could share. And let's also look at Jesus. I mean, that's the most hospitable man that's ever lived. He even lowered himself to wash the dirty, disgusting feet of the apostles, a task that not even slaves were supposed to do if they were Israelites. And that's the kind of person that Jesus was. It's interesting that the way that you gain respect and, uh, and assert that leadership role that God made men to fulfill is by doing something that a lot of people would perceive as unmanly, which is to be humble and hospitable. To not let your arrogance to get the better of you. To listen to other people and take their concerns into consideration before you make decisions. See, if you want to be a man of God, that's a pretty important first step. You want to be somebody that people respect, take care of other people. That's the example that Jesus put out there, and it's the example that we should all be following. Whatever you do, don't be in the ball. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.